This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Heavenly Father, these are wonderful and challenging passages of Scripture this morning. Please help us to listen. Please speak, Holy Spirit, and touch our hearts and minds. In Jesus' name, amen. Let love be genuine, writes St. Paul. Live in harmony with one another, he says. So far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Oh boy. Life is messy. And it's concerning that messiness, particularly regarding relationships within the church, that we encounter Jesus giving some very down-to-earth instructions to his disciples in our gospel reading today. Jesus knows that in the Christian community there's going to be trouble. People are people, the world over and through time. People hurt people, and hurting people tend to hurt people even more. What is clear as we work through this teaching this morning is that undoing the hurts and the consequences of sin in our relationships with one another is hard work. And the teaching of Jesus today is not a shortcut to success, nor does he offer an easy formula that guarantees reconciliation. But Jesus does give us a number of important steps that we can take. And I, let me say this uh, right at the start. This is not a comfortable teaching. But it is a teaching that we need to be reminded of from time to time. And while our Christian faith is personal, it is also communal. In the family of God, we're stuck with each other. But when we get together with one or two others to engage in this work of reconciliation by gently confronting sin, Jesus is with us. And that's a wonderful, wonderful gift. You know, the mark of a true, faithful, biblical community is not the absence of conflict. It's not the absence of conflict but rather the willingness and the will to be reconciled and the presence and power of Jesus, our great reconciler, through his finished work on the cross and his continuing work through the Holy Spirit. I wonder, how committed are you to reconciliation? I think we all know, if we're honest, that we, the church, and every individual within it, well, we have baggage. We are all works in progress. In many ways, it's quite remarkable that we're all part of the same church family at all, given the many differences that exist between us. I am frequently in awe and feeling 
very grateful that on any given Sunday I can look out and see such a diverse group of people, to see people who profoundly disagree about things, especially politics, and yet we're here together, worshipping together week by week. And given the many and varied differences between us and given our human nature and our natural propensity to think, say, and do hurtful things, we should not be surprised when we encounter in the church or we ourselves get caught up in disagreements and difficulties. It's normal. It's to be expected. But that said... It's not okay. Sin is never okay. And neither is it okay for us to do nothing about it. Over the years, I've had the privilege of seeing us get it right and seeing broken or strained relationships among us that have been marvelously restored as folks have put into practice Jesus' teaching about reconciliation. I've experienced this personally with people whom I'd sinned against, who came to me, and we were restored. But sadly, I've also seen us get it horribly wrong. And it is so very easy to let broken relationships to go undealt with by refusing to do what Jesus himself calls us to do. I, I think Christians are not very good at dealing with conflict because either A, we're stubbornly convinced of our own rightness, or perhaps B, we have this kind of romantic notion that we shouldn't have any disagreements, which is ridiculous. Or maybe C, we feel that if someone hurts us, we should be all very stoic and just turn the other cheek. Now, Jesus, of course, did teach us to turn the other cheek, but in a very different context to what he's talking about today. The context of that teaching was in the Sermon on the Mount and was in relation to how to react when a non-believer attacks or persecutes you. And the context here is completely different. In today's gospel, Jesus is giving instructions about what to do when someone in the church sins against you. And the capacity that we have to ignore this teaching never ceases to surprise me. And so what people often do first when someone sins against them is nothing. And then they bottle it up and they stuff it and they get bitter or they get angry. They may eventually also tell their friends and soon the resentment simply grows and the situation worsens, and a relationship remains bro broken, and so we just avoid one another. And you know, in a church of our size, a bit more difficult today when there are less people here, but when we've got hundreds and hundreds here, it's, you can do it. You can just avoid the person that you don't want to be reconciled with. You can see them coming, and you can dart the other way. And eventually, something, something gives, something breaks. Either the person flies off the handle, or... Um, the offended person might even just leave the church, wounded, resentful, despairing. And sometimes they go to another church and the same thing happens again. Or they just stop going altogether. And Jesus lays out for us a very, very different and a very straightforward, though not easy, 
approach for dealing with these situations. Jesus says, if another member of the church sins against you, and I need to stop. Jesus is talking about what? That's not a rhetorical question. What's he talking about? Sin, thank you. He's talking about sin. He's not talking about someone whom you merely find annoying. There's no cure for that, I'm sorry. It's just gonna be how it is. Or from someone who's different from you. Suck it up. Oh, I shouldn't say that, sorry. Um, ah. Well, anyway, you get my point. Jesus is talking about when someone sins against you. He's not talking about those other aggravating situations. The instructions Jesus gives are for how to deal with someone not only who sins, but who sins against you. <laughs> he doesn't say, don't be offended. He doesn't say, just overlook it. He doesn't say, it doesn't matter. He says, you're to confront the person who sinned against you. Now, confrontation, I know, is a very scary word for most people. It sounds adversarial. It sounds judgmental. It sounds somehow angry. But it doesn't have to be any of those things. Actually, confronting someone out of genuine love is a mark of real love and concern for another. When you are willing to make yourself vulnerable enough to go to someone and actually point out how they've sinned against you. I said earlier that teaching's hard. Well, it is. It doesn't get easier. For in putting the onus on the one sinned against to make the first move, we're not afforded the luxury of simply waiting for the offender to recognize their sin and come to us and apologize for it. Indeed, you could wait and that may never happen. Jesus says, if another member of the church sins against you, go and point out the fault. And I want us to note three important things about this. First, Jesus is talking about when someone sins against you. We're not called to go around randomly confronting everybody else's sins just for the sake of it. That would be horrendous. And second, the goal of this confrontation is to restore your relationship with that person. It's not to judge them or condemn them or give them a piece of your mind or to have the last word. And if the member listens to you, says Jesus, you've regained that one. And that's the goal. That's the purpose of the meeting. And that's what you are to pray will be the outcome. And third, you're to go and point out the fault when the two of you are alone. Jesus doesn't say phone a friend or bring it up as a prayer request at your community group or complain to one of the clergy. No, not in the first instance. This is to be a one-on-one -on -one encounter. And I know that this is hard to do. I find this hard to do. It doesn't come naturally. When someone sins against me, my natural inclination is to tell someone else, primarily to bolster my own righteous indignation. By the way, if you find that someone comes to you to point out the fault of someone else, I encourage you gently to ask him or her if they've talked to that other person. And sadly, very often you'll find they have not. I find myself having to ask that question probably between two and six times a month. But what if 
Going to see the person who's wronged you doesn't really uh, resolve the matter. Well, then you proceed to the second stage that Jesus outlines in verse 16. If you're not listened to, take one or two others along with you. And you know, often others can see things that you maybe cannot see. And they can ask questions, that they can be present in the situation, maybe not saying a word, maybe simply quietly praying for you and the other person. And when you involve one or two others in this way, it can also be a really good reality check for both parties. For example, I wonder how much might we actually be part of the problem? Yes, we're going to this other who's sinned against us, but actually we've made our own contribution. And as Jesus says, it's a good idea to have others present who can be witnesses to what's actually said. And if you don't have anybody else there, often you don't even remember accurately what has been said. Again, remember, the goal of all this is restoration, not of proving how right you are. But what if that doesn't work either? Well, then in the next verse, we find the third level of confrontation, which involves bringing the matter before the wider church. And in our context, that might mean the church leadership. And let me say this, if it were to be the local leadership that was the problem, well, then we'd have to take it somewhere else, wouldn't we? We'd have to go to the bishop. Or in our case, you know, if the problem's with me, I hope you'd come and see me and talk to me first or bring someone else, but whatever, don't do nothing. If necessary, drag the wardens. They'll come and bring them, and let's try and be reconciled. But always, always the goal is to try to enable the other person to listen and to see what the error of their ways may be so that if possible they can be restored and reconciled and if that doesn't work well then finally the person in the wrong the person who has sinned against you is to be treated as an outsider now in the church context that doesn't usually mean that we ban such a one from attending Sunday worship, although in certain extreme cases of wrongdoing against another, it could. Most likely, it might mean that the offending person would be asked to step down from any leadership position they may hold in the church. And in some rare cases, it might mean that someone could be refused communion. And that's a fairly drastic step. But we're talking about drastic stuff here because unacknowledged or unrepentant sin is a very, very serious and damaging thing to the person themselves as well as to the wider body of Christ. Even if someone is to become, as it says in verse 17, as a Gentile or tax collector, that is one outside the community, I want you to remember this too. It was for such as these that the church was created. It was for exactly such people that Christ came and died for us. So we don't shun them, we begin again, as with a person who is outside the faith, which might be a different approach. Now, in most cases, the breaches in our relationships don't reach the point of the whole church being involved. So I want to say a couple of other things about how we can go about seeking to resolve conflicts that we often have to deal with in our own homes and families or places of work. 
The Bible gives us many practical ground rules in addition to those that we've already talked about this morning, as well as being willing to make the first move, going in private to the person who's wronged us. We should also heed the words of the Apostle James. We need to be ready to listen before speaking. In James 1.19 we read, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Another important principle for us to follow is to make sure that we always and only speak the truth in love. Not one or the other, but both and. Paul writes in Ephesians 4.15, speaking the truth in love, we must grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. And speaking the truth in love also means telling the truth about our own part in any breakdown in relationship and taking responsibility for it because it is almost never all their fault. It is so important that we have a reconciling spirit and in this our attitude needs to be one of humility, one that is filled with grace, and one that acknowledges just how much the other person matters to God. Praying for a loving heart and a reconciling disposition are important steps we can take as we prepare for such challenging conversations. As I said to the children, remember, people matter more than things. And broken relationships matter, and relationships between Christians should not be disposable. And so we need to be ready to do whatever might be needed on our part, being ready to forgive and ready to ask for forgiveness. Now, having said all of this, I want to acknowledge and recognize that there are some broken relationships that for very specific reasons, it would be inappropriate to go to that person and seek reconciliation face to face. That might be true in the case of some terrible crime, some uh, violence, some abuse. It may not be safe. And in some cases, I also have to acknowledge that reconciliation might be impossible. At its most extreme, this would be true when the offending party has died. And yet, even in those cases, there is something that we can do. We can bring that broken relationship. We can bring those terrible hurts and woundings to God in prayer. And while the particular relationship might never be restored, God can move us to a place of healing where the anger and the pain of that broken relationship no longer consume us. Even in the face of the worst kind of brokenness, we need never face our trials alone. And it may be in some situations it would be really good and right and healthy for you to seek out professional help, to seek out counseling, um, or come and see one of the clergy, but don't just do nothing. 
Well, today's passage from Matthew ends with Jesus reminding us that when two or three gather in his name, he is there among them. And so you literally don't have to face these challenges by yourself. We can ask Jesus directly to help us. We can ask him to give us the power and the love that he provides through his spirit and to pursue reconciliation. And we can ask a brother or sister in Christ to help us. Well, I want to finish with a question. How will you put this teaching into practice? Whose face has come into your mind as I've been speaking? And if there is someone that you need to go to, don't put it off any longer. Relationships are just too important. Take action today. Say your prayers, make that phone call, arrange to see that person, talk with them. And if you've done that to no avail, then ask a couple of trusted friends to go with you and try again. But don't just leave it. And as those of us who are present or coming later gather around the Lord's table this morning, we are reminded of how far Jesus was willing to go to fix our broken relationship with him. Even though the breakdown between us and God was our fault, he did not wait for us to come to him. Even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He took that costly first step towards us, leaving the glory of heaven and sacrificing his life on the cross so that we might be reconciled to God. Brothers and sisters, people are more important than things. And thanks be to God that that's true. May you find grace and help to follow Jesus' teaching even today. Amen.